0: Five, four, three, two, one. Liftoff! We have a liftoff!
1: We are a product of evolution and our biology has to be respected. And you think of how microbes interface with us.
0: If um, Darwin was alive today, he would be the microbiome scientist. There is still so much to understand
1: hello there and welcome back to the biomes podcast my name is dr rury robertson and i am back with the second season of biomes where i chat with the leading researchers in the world studying the human microbiome this second season of the biomes podcast is sponsored by microbiome insights who could be great partners for your microbiome study So whether you're planning a study, applying for a grant, or you're ready to ship samples for sequencing, the people at Microbiome Insights can help. They provide end-to-end microbiome sequencing and bioinformatics analysis, and their range of services enables industry and academic researchers to include microbiome analysis in studies across human, animal, agricultural and environmental applications. Hundreds of researchers around the world rely on the expertise of Microbiome Insights and they are offering free study consultations for all biomes listeners. So to avail of this, go to microbiomeinsights.com and tell them Ruri sent you. In this first episode of the new series, I speak with Professor Jack Gilbert of the University of California, San Diego. Jack is an amazing scientist who has studied microbes from literally all over the world, from Antarctica to active volcanoes and even outside of this world in the International Space Station. In this episode, I talk to him about the amazing interactions that we humans have with the microbes that surround us, how we shape each other's microbiomes and how those microbes shape us. As Jack explains, humans emit about 37 million bacteria an hour, and when we interact with other humans, these microbes are transferred to each other. He has studied these interactions in a wide range of contexts, notably in hospital settings, where he has shown how microbiomes of hospital wards can influence the health of its patients, and has developed exciting probiotic solutions for buildings to aid human health. His research even spans to outer space, where he has reported how the evolving microbiome of the International Space Station could endanger astronauts, and is considering potential future strategies to help solve these problems. So, Jack Gilbert, thank you very, very much for for agreeing to have a chat with me, uh, all the way from sunny, or or not so sunny, San Diego. Um, I've I kind of had a bit of difficulty in trying to figure out a theme for for what I talked to you about because your research is just so wildly all over the place. Um, still relating to the microbiome, but the microbiome of, of everything. In fact, I watched one of your talks where you, you described yourself as a, a pediatric oceanographer at, at one point <laughs> to, to describe the kind of breadth of the, the research you do in the field. So maybe we can just start off and you can give a little introduction to how you got to where you are and how did you start off and, and how did you get to uh, this kind of crazy place you're in now?
0: I would say, I would say the, you could sum it up as um, academic ADHD, right? I, <laughs> I, uh, I love everything and and I have so many questions I want to ask and I, I get, uh, you know, uh, it's weird. As soon as we get a grant to work on something, I'm less excited about actually doing it. I love the ideas. I love, Uh, creating research plans to develop those ideas. But my background's kind of weird. I I worked at the, um, I did my my, uh, undergraduate at King's College in London and then um, uh, ended up working for the Natural History Museum um, down in Kensington for a, a long time. Uh, about a year and a bit, uh, uh, cataloging their um, butterfly distribution patterns. Uh, so cataloging their collections um, and putting them into a comput- computational platform like a biodiversity in Africa. And I, I absolutely loved that. I thought it was going to be an entomologist for my whole life. And then weirdly, out of the blue, on my lunchtime one, one, one day, I can't remember when it was, Uh, Somebody emailed me and goes, um, your name has come to my attention. Uh, We would like to offer you the opportunity to do a PhD at Nottingham University, but it means you'd have to go and live in Antarctica for two years. And I was like, "Um, what? (laughs) <laughs> um, i was like who is this um and they uh so i i followed it up and and lo and behold i don't know how my name got into the lexicon but i they offered me the phd position yeah. and so i i spent um two years working on microbes and i told them i had you know no microbiology background really apart from an undergraduate course uh, but they said, you can learn that. You can learn that. I'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. And that you can learn that. It'll be fine. has pretty much been the uh, the running theme for my entire career. Oh, you know? of course. We'll figure it out as we go. Yeah. We'll figure it out. Build the plane while flying it. It's absolutely fine. Exactly. And um, so it's been, a, it's been a huge amount of fun. Um, I bounced around. From microbiology in Antarctica, then I went to Canada to do a postdoc where I had to learn proteomics and um, protein uh, characterization, X-ray crystallography, that kind of stuff. I came back to England to work at Plymouth Marine Laboratory uh, for about five years until 2010, um, where we were doing marine microbiology. And then I went to University of Chicago and Argonne National Labs uh, in Chicago. I didn't even know where Chicago was. That's how ignorant <laughs> I was of U.S.
1: US uh, geography. <laughs> Um, you was, only knew I the UK and years. Antarctica but you didn't know uh, right. the geography of the US. <laughs> <laughs> i
0: was like Chicago is somewhere in the middle, somewhere, you know? Yeah. Uh, that's about I yeah. worked there for 9 years and then in 2019 I came over here for um, you know my uh, my mid, mid-life crisis retirement into right. the sunny so climb so from- I can surf
1: butterflies to oceans and now and now to, to humans somewhat which, which we'll get on to i didn't actually know about that antarctica a bit T- tell us about what that was like and what you'd kind of do day to day for science and what was it yeah. like living there
0: it was crazy it was a privilege um there's me and 19 australian guys who are part of the australian antarctic research division and it was only men because uh, they only one woman applied that year so um and you can't ha- due to australian regulations uh, for gender reasons, um, you're not allowed. A, you have to have two women there for because for the prolonged period of time, uh, women need support of other women. That's what we were told. I don't know whether that would hold up under current gender regulations, but um, uh, so it was. It was very isolating from that perspective. I was very young. I was 22 when I went down, um, and uh, I, yeah, it was it was a crazy experience. So my, my basic role there was to find bacteria that bind ice, bind onto ice and stop it from growing, right? So these are ice inhibition bacteria. Mm. Um, and that's a beautiful story. I actually got to go back to the lab, which I worked on um, during that period. I got to go back and see their work because my um, uh, supervisor was retiring. And, uh, you know, it's funny, 20 years on, they've done some incredible things with the science. And they found that some of these bacteria bind onto ice, but they also, um, using this appendage, but they also bind on the same appendage to a diatom. And if six of these bacteria bind onto a diatom, they can use their flagella to swim the diatom up to the surface of a lake, bind onto the ice on the surface where there's light and nutrient rich water to feed the diatom. The diatom then produces sugars, which they consume. I mean, no how insane is that? That's so no cool. Way. Bacteria hijack their own power plant facility and then take up to the top of the lake. And that, that's what blew me away is it took 20 years to uncover this, right? And I just started it by finding this bacteria in this lake. Right. Um, and, you know, and you realize you're just part of a cog in a machine in academia, right? Yeah, and, exactly. You know, yeah. 15 other postdocs and graduate students, you know, galore followed me and did all this incredible work. And I, I love that. I love being part of a larger story. I never amazing. really wanted to be you know, the leader of XYZ. I always wanted to be part of a larger story, a collaborator that can build up this amazing body of knowledge. Right. So I guess, yeah, long way of saying I love doing everything and I love being part of everything and collaborating yeah. on everything. And that's it's, it's stood me in good stead so far.
1: Well, you say that you love only being a part of it, but really you were a a leader in one of the big kind of things you're known for is the the Earth microbiome project and you're, you you led this to try and catalog um, you know, living microbes in in huge number of environments all around the world. You you were not not to try and blow your trumpet or something like that, but you know, you are you were like Darwin trying to, you know, systematically catalog, you know, <laughs> Microbes, which we don't know enough about, uh, in all kind of regions of the world. So tell us a little bit about that, and you know how close are we to, you know, getting to where Darwin was in in his day?
0: Well, I think I think you know we we uh, if, I, I always say if um, Darwin was alive today, he would have been a microbiome scientist, right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> for me, that that um, that holds true because microbes and their uh, potential to um, evolve and adapt. And uh, you know, and, and manage the environments around them. They're phenomenal, right? They are just incredible. What he was, in, you know, inferring from finches and earthworms, you know, we are observing in microbes on a regular basis, and so that that was awesome. Yeah, we started the Earth Microbiome Project in 2010, and there were about 20 or 30 of us uh, locked in a hotel room above Salt Lake City. And doing some pretty uh, well, pretty heavy drinking, but pretty cool theorizing, you know, about what, what could you do if you could sequence everything, right? Um, and out of that came uh, Rob Knight, who's obviously the, uh, the super 50,000-pound uh, gorilla in, in microbiome science and one of my close friends and colleagues here at UCSD. And uh, Janet Jansen, who's up at Pacific Northwest National Lab. And so they, they really, um, uh, you know, Rob had all of the expertise and technical experience. Um, I was just a, a wonderful cheerleader and uh, absolutely loved doing it and had some funds to help kickstart the program. So for me, it was always a part of being part of that group and the and the resulting 450 other scientists that we collaborated with, who also played major roles. Right. So um, uh, not so much of a leader, more of just a herder of cats in getting the pro- <laughs> program to actually work properly. But um, it was uh, it was yeah a phenomenal. Uh, for me, a phenomenal honor to be part of such a large group of people doing some pretty cool science. And it's still ongoing, right? Uh, We, you know, we, in 2017, we published the first paper with uh, 27,000 samples processed. We're now up to about 160,000 samples processed and data is available. It's publicly available on, you know, on multiple forums. Um, And, you know, people can now use that. They can take their microbiome data from their study and put it in context Mm. to the global microbiome. And that's important if you want to understand ecological trends. Mm. But, you know, when will we be done? Never, probably, um, because microbes are evolving. And our main goal is to understand how they interact Mm. with each other, how they manipulate their environment and what that actually means um, for you know for the globe and how the globe is responding to the current crises wow. such as climate change which are affecting it yeah and so yeah we we're in we're in a continuous discovery pipeline and I Brilliant. think Darwin would approve of that right yeah I, I, I definitely wanted think to so. reach a finality <laughs>
1: <laughs> so give us give us a few examples of the kinds of cool places that you have data from in the Earth Microbiome Project. You know where is the equivalent of Darwin's Galapagos Islands, where you have this huge <laughs> diversity that you, you you didn't know much about before. What are the kind of cool places?
0: I mean, you know, this is what's, this is what's fascinating for me. And we did a lot of work on this in uh, you know two two thousand eight to two thousand and eleven, approximately, so about a decade ago now. Um, and uh, we we actually found out one of the most diverse places on the planet. Um, if you look at it from the data, it's actually the English Channel, which makes no sense. It's totally irrational. <laughs> but when we sequence really deeply in the English Channel, yeah. you find all of the microbes, more than 60% of all of the bacteria we observed in any other environment in the ocean globally, right? So that that suggests that that um, we shouldn't think more of, you know, it's not like the Galapagos Islands is the most you know, diverse place in the world. We don't really have that, um, you know, uh, uh, simulcra in Microbiome science because microbes are distributing around the world so regularly. Um, in terms of numbers, the most diverse places are soil and sediment, right? Because they're the ones that have the most niche structure. You know, most little individual niches on a, you know within a say a gram of soil. There's you know so many surfaces which bacteria can colonize. Interestingly, you know, for any gram of soil, only about twenty percent of the surfaces of the soil grains are actually colonized by bacteria, you know, 80% is just a blank desert with no biological material. But um, they are, yeah, it's a phenomenally rich, complex environment. But, you know, because microbes can move around the world, maybe bass Becking was potentially correct. And, you know, everything is everywhere and the environment selects. I don't think that's true in any given moment in any given day. But if you look at geological time, or at least, you know, thousands of years, then I think it's very true. That you know, uh, you know, we we are living in a microbial world. They permeate everything, and they're just adapting to whatever comes along, be it a you know chunk of ape or um, or buildings that we are you know now creating our built environment, which is a massive selective pressure against uh, microbial evolution and changing the the paradigm for many of the microbes that we've come to know and love or hate.
1: That's amazing, yeah. And I want to come on to that in, into the the buildings next. But you know, say you did go back and sample some of these places. I mean, we all know that microbes evolve really, really fast, much quicker than, than we, as, we as humans evolve. So, you know, how how long would it take for you to go back and see completely new species if if you were to go back to some of these places? That you know, obviously that depends on the environment and climate change and things like that. But you know, how fast are these actual changes happening to these kind of communities that you're sampling?
0: Oh, I would, I would argue, um, uh, we, we we'd have to define the parameters of your investigation, well, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. What's the species? Well, there you go. Yeah, it depends. <laughs> you know, I, uh, um if I if you take, say, the, a hydrothermal vent, you know, we see a very very selective environment: high high temperature, high pressure, zero light, um, uh, you know, um, lots of sulfur, so lots of sulfate reducing potential, right? Um, and, you know, uh, are the organisms that we saw there 10 years ago the same as the organisms mm. we see now? Well, most of those events don't last 10 years. Right. So, uh, you know, uh, it's hard to say, isn't it? But I would argue uh, from what we can tell, if you look at strain level or genotype level organisms, right? This is a, you know, the, a microbe with a unique genotype, um, you know, not just one or two SNPs, but, uh, you know, a single nucleotide polymorphisms, but enough genetic manipulation to say, yeah, you know, that's that can do something different. It has a different functional phenotype, maybe very similar to its strain siblings, but it has the potential to do something different. Well, we find find those cropping up all the time. When we looked um, in uh, 2018, 2017, uh, we started this project in 2010, but we were looking at uh, the oil pollution that came out of the Macondo wellhead explosion Mm -hmm. in the Gulf of Mexico in 2010. And we found that the genetic uh, diversity of the microbes in the sediment that were responding to the, uh, the Macondo oil head explosion was phenomenal. A lot right. of these, uh, these bacteria, the genotypes were found all over the Gulf of Mexico. We could find okay. them in sediments that had no oil associated with them whatsoever, but they were very low in abundance. And then around the oil head, they became super abundant. Right. And each one had a unique adaptation to degrading one type of polyaromatic hydrocarbon, right? Mm -hmm. So they were like they were nippling, each one was nibbling away at different parts of the crude oil which had seeped out. Um, And that to me was was crazy. You know, these guys are hanging around waiting for something to happen. Well, you know, each one of them is also undergoing genetic mutation and therefore has the potential to alter its phenotype in response to the world around it. And that's the beauty of of microbes, as you said.
1: That's phenomenal. That's brilliant. So you you moved on then you kind of looking at the kind of the bigger environment all around the world. And then you you kind of wanted to start looking at closer to home uh, and honing things in a bit. And and you've published some really interesting stuff on um, the microbiomes within the buildings uh, around us in various different settings. Um, One of which is in uh, hospitals. And I know there's some really interesting anecdotes and studies showing how the microbiome of, of the hospital buildings can actually influence infection rates in, in patients. And tell us a little bit about that and, and why the kind of microbiomes of, of hospital buildings might actually be important for the humans within those uh, those buildings.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the key takeaway from all of our studies, you know, we published a study in 2017 uh, um, that basically demonstrated that You know, what we'd found before that when when a human being enters a room, they shed so many bacteria that they basically, their microbes, uh, the ones that can survive in a building, which aren't very, very few, 99% of bacteria that leave your body die, right? But the 1% that do survive uh, they are your microbes and they colonize the space that you're in. Each one of us is emitting 38 million bacterial cells an hour, according to Jordan Petcher at Yale, who did some phenomenal work in that space. Um, but the 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 outcome is, you know, the people, the patients enter a room and they their microbes leave their body. Now, what happens to the ones that do survive is very interesting. What we found through uh, extensive metagenomic analysis of over hundred samples, and then reconstructing the evolutionary selective pressure upon operons that were associated with antibiotic resistance, is that the bacteria that were in the room were being selected for antibiotic resistance, but not by the antibiotics the patient was getting. And that was really interesting to us, right? So uh, it didn't matter what antibiotic the patient was receiving, the organisms were being selected for antibiotic resistance genes that had no relationship to that antibiotic. And we hypothesize based on the evidence that we received from there and and recent studies that we've been doing that haven't been published, that the bacterial operons that are associated with antibiotic resistance are also associated with survival in extreme environments. So you've got things like Staph aureus, um, Strep pneumoniae, uh, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, and they're leaving the bodies of these patients, ending up on cold, dry, um, you know, harsh surfaces uh, where there's virtually no moisture. And they're surviving, but they're surviving on the edge of survival. Mm. And so, the, you know, the selective, uh, the selective pressure of that survival uh, environment is also enabling these, these organisms that just so happen to contain antibiotic resistance genes on those operons to survive and thrive right? Mm. Well, thrive is hard, but they're definitely thrive, surviving. Yeah. And and so the, the potential for those to recolonize people who are susceptible is great, right? And so we, we're doing a double whammy, you know, we're working with people who develop phages uh, to kill off the bugs inside the patient. Mm. But we're also working on people, uh, sorry, on strategies to um, alter the building environment, potentially by adding bacteria back in, bacillus uh, subtilis spores, for example, to just saturate the environment with good bacteria or you know, benign bacteria yeah. um, that can outcompete these bugs that can survive when they leave our body in that space. So that's it's fun. biological control in a hospital. Yeah, and we, we, we think that's much better than sterilizing everything. Because if you sterilize everything, the patient, the patient doesn't stop emitting bacteria into the environment. Mm. So if you sterilize a surface, two or three minutes later, the patient's bacteria have recolonized it.
1: Yeah, I and think so it's there's, impossible there's evidence that. of that, isn't there? I'd read some interesting anecdotes, at least anyway, that hospitals that had installed this kind of antimicrobial flooring, you know, hoping that it would reduce infection rates, but actually it, it increased infection rates because it kind of right. le- led to those, those bacteria. Well, it can select. Are, yeah. yeah, the
0: bugs, as you pointed out earlier, the bugs find a way. Yeah. You know, it's like very Michael Crichton, you know, the life will find a way. But microbes do, they, they find a way around um what we're trying to do i mean i, I often say look that if you really really want to be super sterile the best thing to do would be cover every surface in copper right you know it's very hard for microbes to evolve a mechanism to you know to, to, to survive or resist you know copper oxidation the, from the, the divalent metal ion getting into the. it's just it will it will, should wipe out everything right But, you know, covering the entire surface of a hospital in copper would be incredibly expensive Uh (laughs) and almost um, and potentially, you know, um, uh, um, and may, (laughs) you know, you don't know, but it may lead to resistance. It would be crazy if it did. But, you know, that's that's the exciting piece. So we need other solutions. Things are working quite well, but we need other solutions to these problems.
1: So tell us the practicalities of that. How do you fill a hospital potentially with these kind of healthy or or kind of non-disease causing microbes? uh in order to to do that are you spraying it around the place yeah are
0: you, really well i mean researchers are already doing this i mean you can buy products on the market on amazon you know whatever your favorite uh, uh, online retailer is that contain bacillus spores in them um so you can you wash your home with bacillus spores if you want you know these are just standard cleaning products spray bottles you know uh, floor cleaners and 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 the issue is we just don't have a huge amount of evidence to suggest it actually does anything. Hmm. Now There is a group in Italy and one group in Florida that have done uh, limited clinical studies and demonstrated that the addition of these spores compared to standard cleaning tends to reduce the abundance of antibiotic resistance genes in the environment,
1: right. but
0: um, they're very small. Now, we're doing much larger studies replicated at a much larger level to demonstrate its efficacy, we hope, right, um, as a potential strategy. But it's um, it's it's one in a tool, a box of arsenals. One one that is interesting is we've also just recently demonstrated that SARS-CoV-2, like the flu virus, binds to the outside of some of these bacteria, which can survive in the outside of the uh, of the body. Right. So if you think uh, if SARS-CoV-2 um, uh, finds its way into someone's lungs and that person has Staphylococcus aureus in there and the SARS-CoV-2 can bind onto the outside of Staph aureus, then when both of those are released into the environment, um, the SARS-CoV-2 can survive longer outside the body right. um, on cold, dry surfaces, because it's bound onto this bacteria, which can also survive, right? And then if that's re-inhaled, the bacteria finds a, a, a neat little way of getting back into the body because the SARS-CoV-2 can help the bacteria to invade human cells, because you know the lock and key mechanism of the spike mm. protein. But it can also and it can also help the uh, the virus because then the the body goes into paraplasms of uh, of uh, immune response to deal with the start starts for the Staph aureus and leaves the sars cov two alone no, and right. so there's a great researcher uh, uh, Jason Roche um, at St Jude's Hospital who is do, who did this work in um, in flu and demonstrated it quite effectively that flu rate uh, flu transmission is much greater if um, uh, ferrets have a particular types of bacteria in their lung um, because of this transmission potential and we're now demonstrating that in, um, in SARS-CoV-2 and it, so it may be that you know if, if a SARS-CoV-2 staph aureus conjugate lands in an environment flooded with bacillus spores it may not survive and may not have the a greater potential to cause transmission and that so we think there may be benefits even to the current pandemic of doing this and that's wow. exactly what we're researching now.
1: Wow amazing. So how does that work then? So we've, we've kind of, we're kind of honing in on ourselves here. We started like earth and hospital and now we're coming a little closer to home in, in the home itself, you know, <laughs> I made you choke in your teeth. <laughs> Give you a minute. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry about that. No, sorry. no, you're all right. You're all right. It's the thought of all these spores and everything. Um, so y- you've looked in the home as well. You've said that we're all emitting 30 million cells an hour or, or whatever is it is. Uh, can we go into a room so how much of that then in a confined environment like in a home is actually transferred from individual to individual so say i have a new roommate that comes in and lives with me you know am i actually transferring that much and, and how is that transfer happening is it airborne is it through surfaces and um, you know how, how much are we kind yeah, of it's a really good question
0: yeah when we look at when we look at um say people that become roommates um, there is a certain degree of microbial exchange and we looked at this in air force cadets so these are people who come from all over the country to a air force academy sorry the t really did a number on my, <laughs> on my larynx it's all right <laughs> is very worry. dangerous and um they came from all over the country they stayed in and you get these they, they stay in um, a duplex room right so the room has like it, like um, a dormitory in a in a university. It has uh, two beds, um, two tables, and they they use those rooms. But they all eat the same food because it's the military. They all do the same exercise regimen. They all have the same haircuts. They all wear the same clothing. It's very very prescribed. And in that study, which uh, uh, was led by the military, um, we we noticed that people, these these young, very healthy people tend to only exchange about 5% of their microbes. So they'll only become about uh, 3% to 5% microbially similar. Right? Mm. <clears throat> Otherwise, most of the microbes are just mixed in the environment. Right. We don't fundamentally understand the mechanism of that transmission. We hypothesize it's through um, uh, you know, that shared activity and then inhaling it. On your skin, um, yeah, any microbial contamination—let's call it that—that that you pick up can easily be washed off with hand washing, right? And then your own microbiome will bubble up through the skin, the depths of your skin to the back to the surface. For example, if I, if you and I shook hands, we did this with uh, uh, for NPR once with um, uh, what's it called uh, the the uh, physicist who's the um, on the TV all the time for Cosmos. Um, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson oh, yeah, we had yeah. him shake hands with somebody and then we swabbed their micro their hands uh, every minute for about five minutes um and and you know you can see the uh, the microbial evolution of his microbiome coming back to his hand you know there's a bit of contamination to begin with and then it resurfaces it restructures itself and so there's always this um if we clean someone's hand the, their skin will come back to their own microbiome and eradicate whatever signature existed previously but you know, um, uh, prolonged exposure will be, have a big impact. If those two people are physically interacting, that changes everything entirely. Um, right. Swapping saliva, as it were, um, and uh, physical conjugation can have a, a dramatic effect, uh, leading to a higher degree of similarity. But even married couples uh, will retain unique microbial identities over, you know, decades of cohabitation. And so there is a there is an element there that. Um, that your microbial self stays who you are, you just swap a certain right. amount. Right. But a great, you know, Rob Knight did a wonderful study once where he looked at couples living together that either had dogs or babies or, or nothing. And couples with a dog were more microbially similar to each other, i.e. they shared more of each other's bacteria than couples with a baby or couples without a dog. Really? Um, so there's a there's something else going on there that we can't quite tell. Pass through the
1: dogs somehow. Why are
0: <laughs> super transmitters? You know, like a great vector for <laughs> microbial transmission. We don't know, but you know, it's that 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 kind of uh, understanding of where how the microbes are transmitted So something we we. It's very hard to determine, right. yeah. even even in animal models, right? Um, because hard to track the movement of all of these mm. microbes. We use mathematical algorithms to do it, but they're not perfect.
1: Right, that's interesting. So you, you kind of retain a lot of your own microbiome. So presumably there's something ingrained from earlier in life that, that forces you to kind of have your own microbiome, or maybe not earlier in life, just something about your body that, that brings it back. So what well, do we know yeah, Well, it,
0: it, it, you're an ecosystem, right? And your right. immune system is kind of unique as well. And so the combination of being, having that, you know, uh, Darwin would be proud, right? That uh, You are an island you're colonized as an island and whatever that starting colony is will shape how your ecosystem develops and your immune system shapes that as well so that partnership between immune system and microbiome is going to be continually shaping and structuring who you are you can change that dramatically over your life through diet you know uh, antibiotic therapy etc but for the most part it's always going to bounce back Mm. to who you were originally Mm.
1: amazing and so if there is that transfer between people do we know enough yet what the implications for that are say there is this five percent transfer you're saying or more if you're kind of physically interactive with people is there any evidence to show that that is actually has any implications for health or is that enough to to influence this island or this host
0: uh, we don't we don't have any evidence at all to suggest it influences health um uh, you know there's there's lots of data to suggest that interacting with um, with fellow siblings, for example, that have gone to school can influence your immune response as a child. You know, fantastic work from Susan Lynch um, in University of California, San Francisco and um, groups in Germany. Um, I'm trying to remember her name. Oh, it's terrible. She's a really good friend of mine. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody else. <laughs> I'll come to <laughs> me later. <Yeah. laughs> uh, I've, I've demonstrated quite effectively that um, that children growing up in a household that have older siblings that go to school will have a stronger immune response mm-hmm. and are less likely to develop asthma or allergic disease than children who do not have older siblings that are at school. So there's, a, you know, there's, a, there's that element that interacting with those children that have that um, other microbial exposure could be playing a role, but it's all circumstantial to a certain extent. We cannot unpick the mechanism that underlies that interaction. But, you know, the work we've done with the Amish and Hutterites um, looking at asthma uh, effects has demonstrated that children interacting with furry animals and to say that Susan Lynch's work with dogs and cats, children interacting with furry animals very early in life can have a profound effect on their immune response. Mm. So there is a there's an element of that. If you grow up with a dog and you can physically interact with it under the age of one, you'll have a 13 percent reduction in the likelihood of developing asthma. If right. you grow up on a farm interacting with farm animals, you have a 50% reduction in the likelihood of developing asthma, which is phenomenal, right? right. So maybe interacting with humans could be beneficial, but interacting with furry pets that, or furry farm animals, that might be even, even better. better, right? Yeah. So worth, right. worth thinking about.
1: And so one of these other kind of unique environments you've looked in you know we we know that if we have exposure to animals we have exposure to other people that's probably a good thing you know kind of increasing this diversity but there's some cases where people are um you know exposed to a limited environment one of which i suppose is the international space station which i I think (laughs) you've looked at as well and that i suppose is a really unique environment to look at because these people are in a confined space for six months a year with only i think five other people um, and not any real exposure to, to the outside world and these other external organisms that you're talking about. So what happens there? We know there's long term implications for health uh, for these people. Maybe not long term, but there is implications for when they come back. Yeah. Some of that to do with their changing microbiomes or how much do their microbiomes change when they're up there?
0: We're trying to understand that. Right. And it's really complicated. And the, the complication is these are really small groups of humans. Um, And so we don't have any statistical power to actually assess what's going on. So all the human studies actually on the International Space Station are really limited and really hard to actually infer anything from. However, you know, um, our main interest is, is does the environment shape microbial evolution? And so, you know, we currently have we're sending up um, uh, more um, materials up to the International Space Station a couple of months time on a SpaceX um, uh, uh, um, uh, resupply. Uh, because we want to do time-lapse uh, or time-lapse observations of microbial evolution in that space we already know that if we spacefly fly isolates of fungi or bacteria and we bring them back down to earth uh, they'll be more pathogenic than the same organism that just stays on earth right. for the duration of that exposure right so um, you know if we infect nematodes with those bacterial fungi they more nematodes die if the organism has been space flown we don't know why though right we uh we however hypothesize that the combined effect of being in this cold dry harsh environment uh, maybe combined with more radiation exposure from you know uh, cosmic rays um, and the sun maybe also zero gravity is somehow shaping these organisms evolutionary process or their epigenetic process um, in a way that um, has an impact upon their uh, pathogenicity mm. or virulence uh, but it, it's you know it, we are at really early stages of trying to figure that out so our main issue is you know, say you've got a, a, a an astronaut and she has to fly to mars and she's going to be there for six months in a spacecraft right with maybe three other people but she's going to be there also with you know, uh, 30 uh, to 40 trillion bacteria in her body and 30, 40 trillion in the other ones. And those bacteria leaving her body, ending up in this environment that is shaping pathogenicity. If she does become susceptible to an infection, is there the opportunity for these built environment microbes in the spacecraft? to reinfect her because of this heightened virulence activation, whatever's driving it, right? Mm. And so uh, we're really interested in understanding, is it possible to mirrorate that? And so maybe taking our Bacillus strategy for hospitals and imposing it into spacecraft could be a way of just preventing that from happening by preventing these organisms from ever establishing in the Mm. International Space Station. But then the question is, does Bacillus Mutate into some horrifying, you know, monster spacecraft bacteria. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm currently having those uh, those etymological fights with NASA to uh, to say like, you know, no, it's going to be fine. Well, how do you know? Well, I don't know, but you know, it's, it's a
1: there's definitely going to be a movie made about that. You know, this uh, scientist who says everything's going to be fine, and suddenly it all. Went. <laughs>
0: Fine, no, no, it's all fine, no, no.
1: Maybe we got
0: space zombies and everything's gone well, crazy exactly. on exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe that.
1: But it is worrying. I know there's talk of this kind of like colonization of Mars and, and all these other places. And really, that could be our downfall. Is is the microbes that we bring up with us? You know, rather than right. uh, rather than us being the uh, the architects of our own downfall through I don't know. Well, that's why I and...
0: think we need we need uh, we need to take dogs into space, right? Laika oh, yeah. was the first one. She didn't survive. Well, we need we need dogs in space with the people. Why can't we have dogs in the International Space Station? They'd love it, uh, yeah, right? The poop love it. cleanup might be a problem. Floating There's around. Take, yeah. When we go to Mars,
1: we should have dogs there. Yeah, I mean, that'd you know, be a great uh, idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's it. awesome. <laughs> all right, well, you can suggest that to NASA now with your one of your next. Uh, <laughs> oh, I already have a poo pooed the idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we'll leave it that. I don't know. What, what do you see? I was, I was about to kind of ask you what is the future, but I feel like we're talking about the future already with all these space things. Like, what are you? What What are you excited about next? You've done Antarctica. You've done the Earth. My you've done space. You know what? I'll
0: tell what you what the two see? things I'm most excited about. Right, you know, I, you know, as you can tell, I. I generally get very excited about all of it, right? But um, uh, what I really, uh, really want to do, we've done a lot of observation for the last 10 years. We've built some phenomenal hypotheses. One of the two things I'm most interested in doing are precision therapies for humans, right? I really want to get to the stage where, um, you know, we've identified say bacteria release this chemical, this metabolite into the bloodstream of humans. It can be an indicator of disease, but could it also be a therapy? You know, we found certain uh, bacteria release, certain metabolites into the serum, which actually alter the allergic response of immune cells in children's lungs and prevent them from developing asthma. It's a hypothesis. We've got mouse work that suggests it. I really want to get to the stage where we can test that in a clinical trial. Mm. And I'm maybe one to two years away from doing that. But if I take this metabolite and I can inject it into children's bloodstreams early in life who are susceptible to developing asthma, can I reduce their chances of developing it? You know, uh, 12% of the US population uh, can develop asthma in their lifetime. That's insane, and right? And it's, and it's growing. A, probably. Yeah, it's yeah. growing and it's a debilitating disease that we, we may be able to prevent. So I'm really keen on doing that and, and you know, and, and many other diseases. But, you know, come back to environments, you know, we're working extensively now with groups like um, um, one of my colleagues, Jeff Bowman and Sarah Allard at uh, Scripps Institution of Oceanography, and colleagues around the world as part of a new consortium we've built up, like an earth microbiome focused on mangroves, right? Mm-hmm. Mangroves suck up all so much more carbon, five to six times the amount of carbon as, as terrestrial uh, forests, and they're nurseries for fish, so they, they're important for re-establishing fish stocks. And they clean up all the pollution coming off the land so they prevent the degradation of coral reefs. These are incredibly important environments. And so we're working to build microbial probiotics, so specific microbial organisms that can be placed into the root systems of of, of planted mangrove trees to promote their growth, to merulate and remove pollution so we can actually reestablish mangrove forests around the world. And those are just two examples right We're translating our science now. Mm. that's what I'm most interested in doing. That's the legacy I'd like to leave when I shuffle off this mortal coil is that we've actually developed some therapies for the earth and for humans who actually have lasting impacts on the health of our planet and our populations
1: Thank you very much for listening to the Biomes podcast. Sponsored by Microbiome Insights and with me, Dr. Rory Robertson. Tune in next week for some more fascinating insights into the latest developments in the human microbiome.